Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church, Kannapolis, North Carolina. As senior pastor, Dean Hunter shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. If you have your Bibles, today we'll be in the book of Matthew, chapter 16. And coincidentally, we will be reading, talking, preaching, learning about Jesus. Matthew 16 is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I've preached it before, from it before. I got to get this out of my. Did I hear a yeehaw a little while ago? <laughs> I'm not even going to look in the direction I think it came from. She's obviously not ashamed. She's lassoing her imaginary lasso right now. It's going to be a good day when you get a yeehaw and you're not at cowboy church, something like that. <laughs> Matthew chapter 16, we're going to be in verses 13 through 18 in just a second, but I kind of want to build up as an introduction this passage before we stand and honor God's word and read it. And um, I kind of feel like, I'm not going to say the, the pastor's name right now, but some of you like him and some of you don't, but um, I feel like what I'm about to say is something he would say, but I want you to take it uh, for authentic and worthwhile. Didn't have a vision from God or any, he didn't come down and speak or no cherubim came my way this morning, but... At some point this morning, it maybe occurred to me, I'm careful with the language, that, um, that I'm to remind us that we need to be serious about God and his word. Uh, the, the, the phrase is, it's time to get serious. And I'm not sure who needs to hear that other than all of us. But if we are who we say we are, and we believe what we say we believe. And we believe Jesus is who he said he is. And we believe, as we learned the last couple of weeks, that God is who his word declares he is. It's time to be serious. To be quite honest, the Christian life is not supposed to be cyclical where some days you're serious and some days you're not. The disciples left their nets, left their homes, and followed Jesus, they didn't get the option of saying, well, I'm going to take the week off, Jesus. I'm going to be serious this week, and I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to help you out with the miracles and um, passing out bread and fish. But next week, don't count on me, because I got some other things to do. Now, now I'm going to be on the, your side and say, we've all got a lot of things to do. But we have nothing to do that takes the priority over Jesus. Amen. He's Lord or he's not. 
from the businessman with multi-million dollars in bills and resources and all that to the retired senior citizen who has nothing to do but watch Oprah or whatever else you do with your time. He's to be supreme, sovereign, first in everything. And I I believe we as churches, we as Baptists, we as whatever denomination, and I'm, I'm kind of preaching to all of us, but I'm blaming the church and I'm blaming pastors. We've softened, we've diluted the gospel. We've diluted the supremacy and sovereignty and lordship of Jesus. And I believe that's why the church is in the mess it's in today. Because he is Lord or he's not Lord. He is first or he is last. And so somebody or all of us need to hear it's time to get serious in your relationship with Jesus. If you are, if we are salt and light, if we are believers, it will be evidenced in our life in all facets of our life, every day of our life. I don't know if that has anything to do with Matthew 16, but I think it has to do with Jesus. It does. For the last few weeks, we've kind of been under this umbrella, if you will, of perspective, seeing life through a biblical worldview. Last two weeks, we tried to teach about a biblical view of God. And today, ironically, coincidentally, we're going to look at a biblical view of Jesus. And Matthew chapter 16 is one of my favorite passages at one of my favorite places in Israel. I've been there several times to this location The last group we took, well, the only group we took from the church, went there. I've got three pastor friends who are, don't know how I didn't get invited, but they're in a group together today. They might be sleeping right now, six, anyway. But but this morning I wake up to a picture of Caesarea Philippi. They don't know what I'm preaching. But that was Caesarea Philippi and their group picture was there. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is taking his disciples to this place, this base of Mount Hermon, or Mount Hermon, the beginning of the Jordan River, where, not that you care, but some do, uh, geographically, this mountain uh, is snow-capped most days of the year, and the, the snow melts and the pure water flows down the mountain into this mouth, if you will, of the Jordan River. If you're bold enough, a man of faith, you will reach down and you will take up a handful of this 99.6% pure water, (laughs) and you will slurp it, and I did, and I will do it again one day, maybe. You can see our group in the background there, and maybe the next picture is actually our group that we took, and you can see in the background something that will be alluded to 
in the passage. This is a real place where Jesus took his real disciples to have a real conversation about him being who he is or not being who he is. This was a strategic location. It wasn't just, hey, let's stop here for a while and hang out and talk. Jesus intentionally led his disciples about 25 miles northeast, not on a tour bus, to this location to have a conversation. And so this, con this conversation is in Matthew chapter 16. With this in mind, I'll talk more about Caesarea Philippi in a second. Let's stand as we read and honor the word of God. In verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, that's to be very clear geographically, that's the area, it's not a coast. There's another Caesarea that's by the sea in the coast. This word is area. When he came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? It's a great question. We'll come back to that. Verse 14, and they said, some say that you're John the Baptist, but somehow you have a head. Some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, but who do you say that I am? Who do, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus said unto, and answered unto them, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. It's like when your mom calls you by your first and middle name. <laughs> Mitchell Dane, what? Am I about to die? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Nobody taught you this at school, but my father, my Father, which is in heaven, revealed this to you. And I say unto you, you're Peter. Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Father, we ask you to bless your word. No doubt there are men and women, boys and girls in this room, who believe your word is absolute truth. With that reality, may we look at it today and be reminded who your son Jesus really is. And if there's a person here today, and there's no doubt there are, a person who doesn't know you, believe in you, trust in you, have faith in you and who your son Jesus is. They don't have a relationship with your son. They've never been born again. I pray today would be the day not where a preacher or a pastor or a friend or a parent convicts them, but I pray today would be the day where your Holy Spirit convicts their heart and demonstrates to them their need for salvation. And they would call on you and ask you to save them make you Lord of their life. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. A biblical view of Jesus. Two weeks ago, I tried the task of teaching a biblical view of God in one Sunday. I barely got it into two. 
And I think it's safe to say uh, we didn't scratch the surface of who God is. Today I'm going to try to do that again and discuss a biblical view of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Not who the world thinks about Jesus, but who is Jesus? When we look at this word perspective, I've taught it now for several weeks, this, the actual definition means the capacity to view things in their true relations. True, truly, perspective is able to see things the way they really are. Like 20 second time out. If we've ever lived in a day or it's hard to see truth, it's today. We live in a culture of mistruth. I think it's a strategy of our enemy where we get to the place where we can't tell the truth from a lie. Matter of fact, Scripture teaches that the day will come where people will exchange the truth for a lie. People would rather believe a lie than believe the truth when it's right in their face. A wise philosopher once said, the truth hurts. I'm not sure who he was, but I've heard it a lot. And the truth does hurt. But to, for a believer to have proper perspective, it's to acknowledge truth. Now, this is going to sound very preacher and baptistry. Not that baptistry, but maybe baptisty. Jesus said, sanctify them, believers, separate them by thy word, John 17, 17, in the high priestly prayer, sanctify them, the believers, the disciples, those to come, he prayed for us in John 17, separate them by thy word, thy word is truth. In a culture that is defined by lies, mistruth, fake news, there is still only one source of absolute truth that we can rest our confidence and assurance on. And in Jesus' prayer, he identified one way where you and I can be certain we'll be different from the world. Trust in his truth. Live by his truth. Claim him as truth. Jesus, Jesus, something about that name. There is. There's something about it. So I'll find a verse where there says there's something about it. Well, there, there is no other name given among men whereby you must and can and shall be saved. That's a pretty different name. That's a verse. But let's do this practically. I've asked you to do this before. Tomorrow, go to work. Unless you work at a church, which still might be awkward. But <laughs> go to work. Go up to somebody and say, hey, let's talk about Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about your prayer partner. Say there's some spiritual people in here. Well, I'll go talk to Jennifer, and we pray with all the time, and she'll be fine with it. No, go to that person that you don't talk to or that looks like they hate Jesus, whatever that looks like, and say, hey, let's talk about Jesus. 
Who do you think Jesus is? And you will, you will really quickly notice there's something about that name. There is power in the name of Jesus. And people have different views of Jesus. If you don't believe it, ask them. What do you think about Jesus? Or maybe come up with something almost original and ask them what Jesus said. Who do you say Jesus is? See, there's a lot of answers. There's a lot of answers. Just ask. There's a lot of opinions. Just ask. But there's only one truth. There's only one true source of who Jesus is. And we find it in his word. What's crazy, super interesting about this passage of scripture is Jesus strategically takes them to this place to have this conversation. Who do you say I am? And it's important for a believer especially to know who Jesus is. Not an ideology of who Jesus is, but a theology of who Jesus is. Not what the world wants to hear about what Jesus would do. I, I got to say this. Our world, our country is changing rapidly, exponentially, from technology down the line. And we're changing rapidly theologically as well. Even in the church, and I won't go down that road, I've got opinions about it. But I feel like there was a time where people wore a bracelet that said WWJD, and it meant one thing. And now we live quickly, now not that people were wearing them last week. I mean, there's still some cool people that still wear them, don't get me wrong. And it's a great theological truth to consider. But now we live rapidly in a changing society where it's not really what would Jesus do in the way we thought about what Jesus would do because we can look at an answer to what Jesus would do based on scripture or we can look at what Jesus would do based on what we think he would do. And we have rapidly moved to what would Jesus do to, now what do we think Jesus would do in 2023? I got a quick answer. He would do the same thing he did in 123 that he does in 2023. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. I am, he said, of himself. I am. Before Abraham, I am. He is eternal. And his truth is eternal. And it's as eternal in eternity past as it will be in eternity future. Say, so, well, I think Jesus would kind of shift with society. Here's, here's something that might hurt your feelings. You're wrong. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. We want to dilute it. We want to soften it. We want to make it palatable because we don't want to hurt feelings. Guess what? Jesus hurt feelings in love in a way we can't. Like we, we, man, I told them off, but I love them in Jesus. That's not how he did it. He was Jesus and he had a way of speaking to them in truth and in love. We only strive to be there, so don't act like you do it right. Because you don't. 
because you're mean and hateful. As I mentioned about Caesarea Philippi, let's show that picture again. This is strategic. I'm not wasting time with this. This was a place that Herod built a temple here dedicated to Caesar Augustus, Caesarea Philippi. He distinguished the name Caesarea Philippi after Herod's son, Philip. He built it to honor Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and he differentiates Caesarea Philippi because there's another Caesarea by the sea, which is right on the, the Mediterranean Sea, which is beautiful. There's a hippodrome there. Y'all know what a hippodrome is? They have chariot races. It's a lot of artifacts. So I'll stop. But this place was built specifically for a temple. Go to that next picture. You can see more clearly. The God that was worshipped, the little G that was worshipped here, um, paramount to other gods, was the God Pan or Pan, the God of nature. So there's a lot of crazy stuff that would happen here. You can actually see carved into the side of the mountain little cavities where little G man-made gods would be placed here. This is somewhat of a, epicenter might be a strong word, but it's a, an epicenter of false worship, pagan worship, little God worship, man-made God worship. Not only, by the way, gods are not always just man-made physically, they're man-made mentally. So this was a place of pagan worship, and Jesus says, hey, let's go walk up to Caesarea Philippi and hang out, and let's talk. So he brings him to this pagan altar, so to speak. This is at the highlight of Jesus' ministry. There's a lot going on. He's taught, and people said, he teaches like nobody we've ever heard. He's healed people. We've never seen this. He raised people from the dead. That's interesting. There's a lot of buzz about Jesus. And he brings his disciples, his followers, by the way, who should know who he is. Did y'all make the application there without me having to elaborate? His disciples should know who he is. They should be able to easily identify to a believer and an unbeliever and to their friend and their enemy who Jesus is. Not who we think he is, but who he is. And he asked this question, who do men say that I am? Who are people talking about? Like, who are they naming me as? They, they know my name is Jesus, but who do they say I am? They didn't, he wasn't looking for the name Jesus. Well, some, I've heard people call you Jesus. No. It's a lot of people that call him Jesus that have no idea who he is. So that's the question he's asking. Who are people saying that I am? And he brings them here strategically. Uh, this is not my notes. But there's, there are people who make Jesus a God. And I'm not talking about just the Hindus who have two million. Legitimately. 
I mean, yeah, I'll take Jesus too. And a little carved figurine. That's great. I like him too. That's a Hindu. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? These disciples knew where they were. And now he's about to teach biblically in this text really quickly who he is. Y'all ready? Y'all ready? At 30 minutes. First thing we see in this conversation is Jesus is the son of man. No fluff in this, in this passage. No fluff in this sermon. No magic tricks. It's all right here in the text. Jesus is the son of man. Now I like how Jesus asked it. Because he's a pretty smart guy. Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Y'all see how he snuck that in on them? He get, that's how I, when I was a teacher, I was a good teacher. Everybody loved me and I gave easy tests because in the test, and I do it on Wednesday night. We have tests in here on Wednesday night. And if you look, quiz, occasionally, pop quizzes, knows, open book, no, don't not come. They're open book and they're easy. But usually I'll give the answers to the previous question and the next question or the one before. So Jesus throws in the right answer. Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? The right answer is he's the son of man, but he's interested in who the people are saying he is. So we see that Jesus is the son of man. Now, uh, if you're a Bible student, you're like, oh, I've seen that before. I know what that means. I don't, maybe you're not. I don't know where you're at. But it's important to understand that the world has a, their view of Jesus or their views of Jesus. Who do men say that I am? Who do the lost say that I am? He's differentiating between his group of disciples here and the world. Who do they say that I am? Who do they say that I, the son of man, am? So even in his question, he identifies himself as the son of man. What does this mean? I do know this. It's Jesus liked it. He used that, that's his favorite self-designation in the Gospels, son of man. 28 times in the book of Matthew, son of man. Son of man does not really mean biblically what it sounds like it means in, in English. I mean, someone would twist it and it sounds real soft, that he came uh, to be the son of all people. He's here for everyone. He's our loving neighbor. That sounds good, and it's probably preached at some churches, but that's not what the Bible teaches there. This phrase, son of man, is actually uh, found early in the Old Testament. Don't have time for theophanies and Christophanies. Huh? That sounds like candy. Jesus is eternal. He didn't just show up at Bethlehem. He showed up visibly at Bethlehem as God in the flesh. But he was there in creation. He was there in the fiery furnace. One looks like the son of man. How many did you throw in there? Three. Oh, we got a problem because there's four in there. None of them are dead, and one looks like the son of man. He's eternal. Son of man actually speaks of his eternality. It speaks of his 
sovereignty. It speaks of heavenly uh, ruler or a ruler of heavenly origin. It speaks of sovereign ruler reigning. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Daniel is preaching this vision. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him, who? The Son of Man, given him dominion, glory, a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Who? The Son of Man. His dominion is everlasting, shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. This is who the Son of Man is. He's sovereign. He's ruler over the universe. Jesus, as God, is the Son of Man, and he'd like to use that title. He is authority. This brings, this really has, maybe it just brings some context to Matthew chapter 8. Remember, if, if you imagine son of man meaning sovereign ruler over his dominion, that's Jesus. Scripture teaches he is both creator and sustainer of the universe. Creator in Genesis, sustainer in Colossians, Son of man as ruler over his creation. This all belongs to him. He is sovereign king and ruler of the universe, son of man. Think about this, Matthew chapter 8. Come follow me. Drop everything and follow me. This would be a cool lifestyle to follow Jesus. And he says, uh, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of man has no place to lay his head. Uh, that, that's a sermon within itself. That the ruler of the universe has no place to lay his head. It, it speaks of his willful obedience to the will of the Father. To leave it. To become as man. To become as one of us. Yet without sin. And to live like us. He did leave his throne in heaven to come to a messed up world and to not even have a home or a place to lay his head. Yet he was the king of the world. Why? Throw this in. For you and for me. He left it all for you and me. He is the son of man. He is sovereign, ruler. Stephen saw this when Stephen was being martyred. He looked up and he said, I see the son of man standing on the right hand of God. Revelation chapter one, you don't have to turn there. Don't put it on the screen. John is speaking of Jesus in verse 13 of Revelation one. He says, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks is one like the son of man clothed with a garment down to his foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. This is the Son of Man. This is who Jesus is. I am he that lives, was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and have the keys of hell and of death. Jesus is the Son of Man. 
He's ruler. He's king. He's authority. Already been sang and sung and preached by music. He is authority. And we must acknowledge him as authority. The world must acknowledge Jesus as authority, and the, word, the world will acknowledge him as authority either now or later. Because at some point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of all. Have you, have you made that decision now? Is he Lord of all? Is he the son of man to you? Jesus is the son of man. In verse 14, we see that he is superior to the prophets. This might not mean much to us, but it meant a whole lot to his audience that day. The, the Jewish nation, they trusted in their prophets. They elevated them to almost godlike status. I mean, they had read them. This is their story time books. Can you read Jeremiah to me tonight, Mommy? How about Isaiah? That'd be great. They looked at these people. They lifted them up. John the Baptist was a prophet. They didn't like what he said. By the way, um, this is a little mini, mini message, but John wasn't killed for what he prophesied necessarily. He was just killed for telling the truth. That's a different story. But they elevated him almost in like a to folklore status. How do I know this? Um, somewhere in my notes, it tells me. In Matthew 14, verse 2, Herod said, when they heard about the fame of Jesus, and the word was picking up, Herod said, uh, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. So they were like making up stories or like, this this Jesus is John the Baptist. So this was already in effect when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, Isaiah, or John the Baptist or one of the other prophets. This was not necessarily a, a bad statement to Jesus. It was incorrect, but they weren't meaning it as uh, denigrating. Some say you're one of the prophets. Hebrews is very good uh, at teaching that Jesus is superior. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Joshua. He's superior to Aaron, the high priest. And above all, he was the superior sacrifice. But in this text, Jesus is teaching in the conversation that he is superior to the prophets. I'm just cut to the chase. Jesus is superior to the prophets. He is so superior. He is the fulfillment of their prophecy. That's who Jesus is. He's greater. He's son of man. He's superior to the prophets. Unless we run out of time, he is savior. Savior of the world. This is where there's an interesting turn in the conversation. I hope... And for Peter's sake, he hopes, he told me this, that we think of him in a positive light and not as what my dad used to call mouth of the south. Peter liked to talk. He obviously liked to cut as well. 
ears. He is a little bit of a hothead. He was um, not slow to speak or slow to wrath. He seemed to be quick to speak and quick to cut. But here is where Peter got it right. By the way, he also walked on water. How about that? Which I believe is why he was able to answer the way he answered. So I, I was a teacher at a time. My wife's a teacher. We've, if you've been a teacher, you know how this works. P kids raise their hand, and they don't even know what question you just asked. <laughs> there are some kids that just automatically, when a teacher starts talking, their they're like rotator cuff goes in there. Right? <laughs> I coached. I would say, you can't listen with your hand raised. Then they'd look like, I think I can. No, no, you can't. You're distracted. Your hand's in the air. Are you stretching? What's wrong? So Jesus is asking the question, and I think Peter was the one that always had his hand raised. What, yeah, what do you got there, Peter? And I think all the disciples were like most of us, good, wholesome, mature, scholastic people, like, oh, here he goes again. This ought to be good. Who do men say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Peter... I think he spoke before his hand got raised. I believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God. I think that the other disciples were like, like some of our students sometimes. They're like, he got one right. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that from Peter. Y'all know that kid, right? Or that adult. Whoa, I didn't know that. I didn't know intelligence was possible out of that, but there we go. He got it right. Now, I love this, and it's really in the text that you see this. And I think it's important for us to understand. Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? They answer. Jesus spent zero amount of time discussing who the world says he is. Because the most important question Jesus could ever ask you is who do you say he is? It doesn't matter what Cousin Billy thinks about Jesus. It doesn't matter what your boss thinks about Jesus in relation to your view of Jesus. Now, it does matter in how we witness and evangelize and disciple, but that's not the point. He spent no time, there's not one verse, there's not even a Jesus wept two-word verse in relation to what the world, the lost say about Jesus his important question is, who do you say that I am? And it was important that Peter got it right. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the long-expected one. I, I was reading that a time or two this week, and it hit me why, why Peter was possibly able to answer it so quick and get it right. Do you want to know why? Good. I'm glad you asked. Peter had been saved. Ooh, I never saw that verse before. Y'all don't, don't think Peter was saved? In Matthew chapter 14, Peter said, if it's you, Jesus, make me walk, command me, bid me to walk on water. Y'all know that passage, right? Okay, tell somebody, tell somebody about it after church. It was a question of whether he really was Jesus or not. If it's you, command me to walk on water. 
It was, it's a whole different sermon, but it wasn't, hey, it'd be cool if I walked on water. It was really a test for Jesus to say, if it's as you, let me walk on water. Because Peter knew he couldn't walk on water. Like most of us, sane people. If it's you, command me to walk on water. Right? Y'all know this. He's like, hey, come on. Peter said, all right. And he was walking. Y'all seen the picture, right? There's a picture of him walking on water. Just kidding. It's not real. But he's walking on water. Really happened because there's a picture in somebody's room right now. He's watching Jesus, and y'all know what happens. Storm takes off. Waves are high. Takes his eyes off Jesus, puts his eyes on the storm, and he starts to sink. And here's what he says. Y'all know what he says? Save me. Peter been saved by Jesus. The Bible says he cried out to him, save me, and Jesus immediately reaches down and yanks him up. Now, I'm, I'm not playing tricks on you that he came to an old-fashioned altar at a tent revival at Back to Bethel and got saved. <laughs> but he had been saved by Jesus. He had been saved by the Christ. He had been saved by the Son of Man. He therefore believed that he was the Savior of the world. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the Savior. You're the one that these other Jews are denying as the Messiah. I believe you're him. There's a lot of helpful supplemental text where even John asks, is he the right guy? John got into, got into, a, almost, got, John got into a mess where he sent, he sent messengers to ask Jesus, is, are you the one we're supposed to be looking for or is somebody else coming? Right? That's, that's the redneck version, how he said that. And you know what Jesus' response back to the messenger was? Ask him what he's seen and what he's heard. Have the blind not got their sight back? Have the dead not raised? Have you not seen people healed? In other words, remind him of what he's seen who I am. I think, if, and I, I've never come close to drowning, other than how we learned to swim <laughs> growing up. This soft generation. Oh, let's go to the Y and let's learn how to paddleboard or paddle or whatever. <laughs> Most of us people of status, Rowan County folks, our swim lesson, I mean, you'd have had to join the Y. I was the one sneaking in with the guy who had joined the Y, right? <laughs> no, that's illegal. I didn't do that much. But we go out to High Rock Lake at the end of the pier. Ah, I'm going to die. Are you going to sink or swim? One or the other. Right. And if you were fortunate, you swam. So neither one of my parents could swim, so they couldn't get, that's a joke. They, if somebody's thinking, is he serious? Dad, Dad, what if he died? He had been saved by Jesus. He was drowning, and he cried out, save me. So Peter had it fresh on his mind, I believe, at all times, you're the Savior. Fast forward, don't have to look at a text. 
Peter acknowledged him as Savior to the very end, to the point of crucifixion, to the point of martyrdom. He died for the reality, the truth that Jesus was Savior. This passage teaches that he's the Son of Man, he's superior, he's the Savior of the world. It also teaches that he's the Son of God. He, in verse 16, not only are you the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. I, now, this is just really kind of cute. Peter knew where they were. And Peter knew, quite, quite sure, he knew the prevalent worship styles of the day. I'll just throw it out there. The gods that had been worshipped or were being worshipped at Caesarea Philippi were not living gods. They were dead. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Man, you talk about Peter getting an A++ on this. This was his day. This was his day. I don't know. I'm not going to say that. i will upset some people. But it was like, okay, I've said the, the brightest, smartest, most theological thing I've ever said in my life. I'm done for the rest of the day. I'm not saying a word. I'm going to go out with a win. Does it matter to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Absolutely it matters. Because what does it mean to be the Son of God? I don't want to hurt any feelings. But the Mormons, the church of, this is, I, I was studying this this week, and it became very comically ironic to me that the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints doesn't have a biblical opinion of who Jesus Christ is. That's a problem, especially if you're going to put it on your, on your church sign. If you're going to put Jesus Christ in your church sign, you ought to at least know who he is. But they've got a lot of problems. We know that. One of them's Mitt Romney, but other than that, they got a lot of other problems. <laughs> I, I, because I've got spare time, I was reading from a former dean of religious education at Brigham Young, which I can't say Brigham Young without reminding the world that Liberty University beat BYU this year for the first time ever. First time they played them, they're batting a 1,000. Never put them on the schedule again. That's how I look. This former dean of religion at Brigham Young said, we believe Jesus is the son of God, the father. I thought you said that. No. And as such, inherited powers of godhood and divinity from his father. That is not the son of God. The actual term, son of God, the, the son of living God, this word son implies the same nature as. It's God is Jesus. Jesus is God. It's the same nature. Jesus actually claimed it when he had a, a back and forth with Philip who was struggling. Remember Philip? How do we know the way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It didn't stop there. Philip kept asking dumb questions. Oh, how we've... Show us the Father. You keep talking about the Father, show us the Father. And Jesus' response was very theological, and he said in John chapter 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are similar. One. He is the Son of God, which means he is God. The Mormon church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, will say, we believe he is the Son of God, as in, like, he is the Son of God and has attributes like his dad. In other words, like a human, looks like his dad, acts like his dad. Do we believe he's the son of God? And there's a, there's a, it's kind of quiet and people are thinking or sleeping or ready to go right now. But this is something that comes up quite frequently, especially when a Mormon runs for president. Everybody got real interested in Mormon theology when we had one running for president. But it's one of the fastest growing religions in the world. Maybe because they find out they, get the, they inherit a planet when it's all over. I mean, that's a pretty good perk. I don't know what you're going to do with a planet. How many of you have given someone? No. How many of you for Christmas or Valentine's, don't, I don't, don't ruin the surprise, have given your spouse a star named after them? Right? That, that's the thing, right, if you don't know that. Give them a star. I'll give, come to my office afterwards. I'll print you out all kind of stars, $20 a piece. I'll frame it, and you, you can. Maybe that's the perks. We get a, how about Jehovah's Witness? They identify as Christian, and they got nice buildings. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but not God himself. And they're all over the place. They're in downtown Kannapolis, passing out free literature. They write me personalized notes. Y'all get personalized notes from the, from the Jehovah's Witness down the street. I mean, they sign their name and everything. You're a Baptist preacher and you get a handwritten note. You're like, oh, Lord, what is it this time? <laughs> then you find out it's a loving Jehovah's Witness. Oh, Susanna down the road. I rode by and thought you were a pagan and wanted to pray for you. Jesus is not just a son and offspring of God. He is God. And it does matter who you believe Jesus is based on the word of God. I remember I remember back and forth conversations about the Mormon when he ran for president. And I'm going to be quite honest, and this is not politics, this is history. I believe he lost because a lot of conservative evangelicals didn't vote for him. But we got something else. And I'm not saying we should have or shouldn't have. I did. I voted for the Mormon over the Muslim. But there was quite theological debates going on. There were people, and I'm, I'm not rehashing history and bringing things up, but I, we have to think biblically, not ideologically, but theologically biblically of who Jesus is. Listen, listen, as, as I, every time I open scripture and learn a little more, 
I, I keep getting to the place where we, America, the world, has to get to the place where many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, did I not give, did I not go, did I not do, did I not bicycle all over the country? Seriously, they, they teach in the Book of Mormon that, that you got to do something, and it's tied into salvation. It's in there. You can check it out in my office if you want to. Bring it back. It's great reading. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, how do we get to that place in the world to where there will be a lot of people thinking they are what they're not? Now, lest we start to sit here and think, Man, that's a mess. How'd they get there? Here's the question. How did you get to where you are? Who do you say that I am? Because I'm not going to give an account for the Latter-day Saint or the Jehovah's Witness or the Catholic or the you name the denomination or whatever. I'm not going to give an account to them because Jesus is not going to ask me who my neighbor thought he was. He's going to say, who do you say that I am? And there'll be people missing heaven Broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many there be who find it, because they didn't learn or by faith believe biblically who Jesus is. And there's this whole other question, and we're not here for debate here. It's not a round table. But what if they didn't know? That's always the question. What if they didn't know? What if they didn't know what you know? That's why we are to go and tell and preach the gospel, the whole counsel of God, who Jesus is. It's important. This is not just trivial. This is not, a, this is not an academic course to where we're gonna get credit for it one day. This is the gospel. This is the word of God, and we are to teach it as the Bible teaches it as truth, which especially is who Jesus is. May we individually, may we as a church never Never miss preaching who Jesus is, biblically. May we not let our own thoughts or our own concerns or our own desires dilute who Jesus is. The world needs to know who Jesus is. The lost man, the lost woman, the lost friend needs to know who Jesus is. And he's not just some great prophet. He's not just some good guy. He's not just somebody who loves the world. He is God. He is God's son. He is the savior. He is the only way to heaven. That's the gospel. That's the truth from scripture, not from the Baptist faith and message. We've got to tell that. I got, I got to do this because I know what time it is and I messed you up last week and you're mad, but and then the Cowboys lost on top of it. Whoa, perspective. But um, this goes on to say he's the sure foundation of the church. That's probably a message in itself, so I'll stop there. I think one of the detriments of civilization society today is based on the world's opinions of God, of his son Jesus, and of his word. That's kind of an overstatement, but it's pretty obvious to be in a church setting, a Christian evangelistic church setting. It should be. I was on the 
I was in a grocery store a while back. I looked this up to research it. And I think there's a, I think there's a lot to be said about what I'm about to share. And on the shelves, I like to look at magazine covers. That's how I found out that the Hubble telescope found heaven, which assured my salvation once that happened. <laughs> I was questioning it, but then I was like, well, that's real. I'm, I'm doing this. I rededicated. That's a joke. That's, I shouldn't say that. But this happened. This was in February. Put, put this up here. You might have seen it. Some of you maybe still subscribe to Life Magazine. I'm waiting. It's, it's past 12. This is y'all's fault now. <laughs> Anybody see this magazine? It's, it was a 10-year anniversary edition. Life does this. Life still has magazines, by the way. You can do it online. But this, this was in the shelves months ago. It was reintroduced from a 10-year magazine cover. But notice it's not just Jesus' high school yearbook picture with Jesus above it. Look at what it says at the bottom. Who do you say I am? Where did that come from? It came from Matthew 16. Now, lest you be confused, Life Magazine is not an evangelistic resource. <laughs> they didn't do this to preach the gospel to the world. Now, if you were to read these articles in Life magazine, they, they do exactly what, if we're not careful, will let happen even in churches today. They talk about the miracles. They may or may not be true. But either way, miracles are metaphors. Metaphors for how we should live. In other words, I'll cut to the chase, Jesus was a model citizen. Now, I, th I think he was a pretty good citizen. But he didn't come to work to show us how to be a model citizen. But that's really the context of the magazine. When he fed the 5,000s, or if he did, either way, it's a metaphor that we should share. Our food, even. And I think we ought to help people out that need some food. But I ain't sharing mine. But that's, I don't do that. The, 5,000 feeding, metaphor for we ought to help people with food. We ought to share our food. Raising Lazarus from the dead, if he did it, it was a metaphor to teach us how we can speak life into our communities. I'm not making this stuff up. This is what's in the articles, which may surprise you with such a conservative resource as Life magazine. When we heal, when Jesus heals, it's a metaphor that we have the ability and the opportunity to heal each other. Now, stop. Some, some of you are kind of picking up on my sarcasm. Some of you are upset by my sarcasm. It's like, well, what's wrong with all that? We should share our food. We should give money, and we do. We should help those in, that are hungry, and we do. Yes, we can maybe speak life into our community. So, so it's not necessarily something terribly wrong other than the reality that it's terribly wrong. That's not why Jesus came. 
That's not the answer to who Jesus is. He is not the model citizen. He is sovereign king, ruler of the world, and only by him can you enter his heaven. That's quite different than sharing your beans. It's quite different than community organizer who can become president for eight years. Yes, he's a model of how to live and the greatest commandment and the, the love your neighbor as yourself and the golden rule and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yes, it's a model of how to live and speak the truth in love. But if we, if we, if churches watered down who Jesus is to just a good person, a good role model to take after, we have missed the gospel and people will miss heaven because of a, an ideological view of Jesus rather than a theological view. Would you stand with me? Who is he to you? Is he a good person? He is. Did he have the ability to teach like no other? He did. Was he a prophet? He was. But he was much more. He was the son of God. He is the son of God. He is the savior. He is the only savior. He is God. Have you placed your faith and trust in him? No other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Who is he to you? If you can't answer that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, your savior, that any other answer is inadequate to become a believer. confident that you know who he is? Would you pray, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that we have access to, to know who you are and who your son is. I pray specifically today for some professing Christian who may be going on some experience, may be going on some opinion, maybe going on some false interpretation of who your son is. May they be convicted today by your Holy Spirit to see just how wrong that is. And they must confess you as Lord of their life. Savior, the only Savior. They must confess you as not just the Son of God, but God the Son. God, we realize what a mess it's going to be one day when people here depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. May that not be said of a person sitting in this room watching this message. May they have absolute assurance that their calling and election is sure and that you're Lord of their life. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church, events, and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.